You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We're joined today by Farhana Kazi, who is a scholar and speaker on conflicts in the Islamic world. She advises U.S. policymakers, appears regularly in the media, and is a frequent speaker at U.S. government events and international conferences. Her work has appeared in Newsweek, the International Herald Tribune, Social Research, Foreign Policy Magazine, the Islamic Monthly Magazine, the Journal of International Women's Studies, Oxford Analytica, Reuters, Al-Rasub, Levant News, Middle East Times, Terrorism Monitor, The Washington Post, The Christian Science Monitor, Dawn, and many, many more. In recognition of her efforts, Ms. Kazi received the 21st Century Leader Award by the National Committee on American Foreign Policy in New York and the Distinguished Humanitarian Award from her alma mater in Texas for her work on women in conflict. She is the author of two forthcoming books, Secrets of the Valley, A Personal Journey to the War in Kashmir Between India and Pakistan, which is a story of women survivors in the ongoing conflict in Kashmir, and Deadly Divas, an inside look at the drivers of recruitment for the girls who joined the Islamic State terror group. She was the first American Muslim woman to serve in the Counterterrorism Center in the U.S. government, providing support to senior officials in the administration and working across the U.S. military and diplomatic community. While doing so, she received several meritorious awards for outstanding service and was recognized by the Center for Expertise on Islam and Regional Knowledge of the Arab Muslim World in South Asia. As a Muslim woman, she was able to help the U.S. government understand political Islam and the impact of war on Muslim populations. Ms. Kazi is also the founder of Inside Kashmir Gallery, a fair trade enterprise that supports women and their families in Indian-held Kashmir. To learn how you can help the female artisans of Kashmir, visit InsideKashmirGallery.com. Farhana, thank you for taking the time to join us here today. Thank you for having me. So a lot of your expertise is based on women in Islam. Uh, and one of the big reasons I wanted to have you here is because we've been seeing more and more lately, and maybe it's not lately, maybe just we've been seeing it more lately, the radicalization of women inside Islam. Uh, Tashfeen Malik, who was the woman terrorist who, perhaps maybe not the mastermind, but certainly the driving force behind the San Bernardino shootings, uh, maybe opened a lot of people's eyes to the idea that women uh, can be radicalized, and not just radicalized, can be you know driving forces behind some of this terrorist activity. This goes against conventional wisdom, right? The conventional wisdom is that women are marginalized in radical Islamic society. So is this unusual that she took an active operational or planning role in the San Bernardino attacks? What fascinates me about the Tashween Malik case, and you know, this was a husband and wife hit, 
you know, team um, and her husband, Sayed Farouk, is that it's the first time we, we've seen a female perpetrator inside the United States. Um, and we saw her enshrouded in the burqa, the full veil, uh, a woman who apparently had rifle training, uh, uh, may have been indoctrinated in Saudi Arabia or even Pakistan, which isn't surprising either because of the Islamist uh, radical trends in both of those countries. Um, but I have to say, with my own research and my own work for the U.S. government, we've seen, I have looked at radical women since the time of Al-Qaeda. And you could even go even further than Al-Qaeda. Um, and women have, as you noted correctly, have played more of a secondary role. That auxiliary role as ideological supporters, as wives and mothers and uh, loyal sisters. Um, so they're, they play a very important role within the, the fa family and the kinship role is important. Um, but you, you raise another point, uh, Vincent, is that women are now instead of being victims, they're victimizers. Hmm. And that is a really an important shift, um, I think, in the last few years. Because she was involved so heavily in planning and the operational side, did this make you assume that this attack wasn't part of a larger ISIS coordinator attack? I mean, having a woman in charge would suggest to me, again, I'm a layperson, would suggest to me that this wasn't from ISIS on high because they never would have had a woman lead this kind of an operation. Am I completely off base on that assumption? Well, I think we need to make a distinction. I mean, in some ways, some, some scholars would like to argue that women are empowered uh, when they take on an operation, that it is it is really empowering to be on the battlefield, or in this case, you know, uh, participate, uh, a lead participant in an operation. But I think we need to bear in mind that, again, she's a participant. She's not a leader of an operation. And if you look at many of the al-Qaeda attacks in the past, many of the suicide bombers in Iraq, for example, um, that trend was started by the al-Qaeda leader in Iraq, Abu Musab al-Zaqawi, um, and that was the first time al-Qaeda started to use women. Women may, women may have feel that they were empowered, strapping on the bomb, but in, in reality, they have never been at the forefront of these operations. Mm -hmm. I have often said that women are a riding wave of Al-Qaeda's success. Now we have seen, ISIS to me is just another, you know, kind of an arm or a branch of Al-Qaeda. When you look at Al-Qaeda's doctrine, ISIS uses the same doctrine and ideology, so it's really no different. Mm -hmm. What we see now in Raqqa and reports that come out, you know, the, the Al-Qaeda brigades and the women who be, um, who are the moral police and they're enforcing these ultra-conservative um, laws, um, that may be empowering for them. But again, their their role, even throughout Islamic history, if you go back for, to you know the 14th century Islam, women have never played an important role um, in the battlefield, and in this case, in these so-called martyrdom operations. I'm wondering, you, your career uh, with the U.S. government, you gave advice to policymakers on how to deal with these kind of situations. You're still doing that today. How do intelligence agencies specifically stop this sort of thing before it happens? And what I'm really asking is we can't just profile people based on how they dress, how they look. Uh, we can't uh, – I remember back when uh, I was in the military and we were in Bosnia and we were always told to look out for military-aged men kind of by themselves or in mm -hmm. small groups. Now you can't really profile that way anymore. You're not looking for the clean-cut military-aged mm -hmm. man. You're looking for families. You're looking for husband and wife teams. I mean to me it really harkens back to the idea that – Intelligence operatives, they were able to have a better cover if they had like a woman with them if they were a male back because of the, no, we weren't looking for married couples or families. We are looking for single men. How is this a whole new world that intelligence agencies have to deal with now where women can be just as dangerous as men? Absolutely. Women can be. In fact, uh, Eileen McDonald wrote 
a seminal book. She's a Buddhist journalist, and I remember reading through the pages of her book with women who were in not only religious organizations but secular nationalist groups. The name of her book was Shoot the Women First. Why shoot them first? Because they are deadly. And I use the term deadly divas when I've given lectures because, frankly, it attracts attention. Some of these women are diva-like, um, but Tashfin Malik was not. She was so enshrouded in secrecy that even her brother-in-law had no idea who she was. So instead of profiling, and we know from my work from U.S. military commanders in Iraq at the time of the female bombers, um, I have, and they've learned as well an important lesson that you can't profile because they're young, they're old, they could be secu- so-called secularists, mm-hmm. as well as, I mean, there's a, um, you know, to the, to the very right, to the far left, um, because ideology, again, radical Islam, may not always be the main motivator for these women, nor is it for the men. So we have to consider that there's a wide range of motivations for perpetrating these attacks or taking part in a terrorist or joining a terrorist organization. Um, so we, I think what I've, I've said recently uh, on television is we need to focus on behavior. Mm-hmm. This behavior that counts. Let's go back to Tashfin Malik. She came to this country on a fiancé visa. She went to the mosque regularly. All right, no big red flags there, right? Um, but and it's not even such a big deal, frankly, even though, I mean, I don't wear the hijab or the burqa, but women who do, you know, she was completely covered. She was in the face veil. So, again, another level of secrecy. Mm-hmm. But she wasn't involved in the women's group there. Her What's so startling to me is that her own family members, male family members, didn't know her. And in my experience living in, I grew up in America. I grew up in the southern state of Texas, actually. <laughs> and, I've, you know, I've, I've encountered these ultra-conservative families. I remember going to the homes of families. Families where uh, my mother was very respectful, so we met with everyone. You couldn't even cross the line in their homes between men and women, mm-hmm. but you could see their faces. Right. So what really is so perplexing in this case is that no one saw her face. Um, and then the lack of engagement, because remember, many of these immigrants who come to this country, they have their own in-group, so their ethno-cultural traditions that they maintain in the household. I had that too. I'm from northern Pakistan. I grew up in a strong Punjabi family. But then you have your out-group. You have mainstream American society where you should acclimate, you should adjust, you should try to, you know, fit in while maintaining your traditions. She's not an example of a woman who fit in. In Mm -hmm. fact, you know, roaming through the spy museum today and all the the, the female spies that are featured here, it made me think of Tashfin Malik. She is a perfect modern day spy for ISIS. Right, which is really interesting to me because I've read a lot of what you've written and you've written about uh, how a lot of people join these groups, especially women, to get a sense of belonging, that they just Mm -hmm. don't they don't have uh, – they don't feel as though they belong in the world. And, and so this is almost the opposite in many cases where she wasn't trying to find her own community here. She was the, the loner. I guess that that the real – the nightmare scenario, like mm-hmm. the lone wolf that doesn't give off any indications. I, and I want to ask you about this sense of belonging because you, you do cover it a bit in what you've written. Um, this sense of belonging, does that apply across the board? To terrorist organizations, like to men and women, like why people are signing up? Because the question is always, why is some normal, relatively normal Western kid flying to Libya or Syria to join ISIS? Uh, is it because they've been marginalized in their communities? Is it because, you know, they have a, a broader sense of this is something I can belong? I know the ISIS endgame ideology, the whole apocalyptic thing is like, you know, join us or, you know, you, you, you miss the fight in many mm-hmm. cases. Is this something that we're seeing? Uh, am, am I completely off base about this? No, I think, Vincent, you're absolutely correct. And, you know, research has shown and those who are, I'm not a sociologist or psychologist, but in my interactions with them and, and looking at this, um, we as human beings are engineered 
towards a social group. We're social beings, so we need to belong to something. We need to uh, have a higher purpose, a, a cause um, that adds meaning to our life. And religion can provide, or this radical form of Islam can provide a, an umbrella for these organizations. But that alone is not enough. Mm-hmm. One of the strongest indicators for these, especially these young you know, people in, in, the, in, in America and in Europe who are joining, is they need that, they need that family. Right. You know, there's that age-old maxim, friends are the family you choose you know so it is it is another kind of family that they have chosen i remember an interview that aired yesterday on cnn the sister of the alleged new jihadi john uh, who's you know the the man in the black mask who's appeared on television and and she said something that really struck me she said we're a normal muslim family uh, he was a compassionate guy my brother was loving and family oriented and and then so she she herself couldn't believe that he joined ISIS. And I had to rethink that statement, normal Muslim family. What is a normal Muslim family? A normal Muslim family, if you take out the word Muslim, it means that you have a strong social structure. Mm-hmm. I've often said this with regards to women. Women who join these terrorist movements are looking to, because women are more you know, social than men in many instances, and they're involved in their communities, and they uphold their family structure. So when that social structure, there's a meltdown of that, uh, women step in. And I think that that's what's happening with the these young people, they don't really have strong family or kinship ties. And so it's very easy in the, in, in, for radical preachers to come in right. um, online. Many, you know, one of the mistakes that Muslim families are making today is they think their children are safe because they're home. My child's not out doing drugs. He's not meeting with, you know, um, non-Muslims, for example, if you're very ultra-conservative. Uh, so they're home. They're, they're protected. Right. That so-called protection is really ignorance because you're not looking at um, – and I hate to – I mean, we parents – I have ch- two children myself, two teen- teenagers, and we're almost – we have to be like spies for our right. children, right? we got to look at who you're talking to, where you're going. Um, and not only that, but today in the digital environment we live in – but who are you connected to online? Right. And more importantly, what is your grounding in Islam? I was recently in Denver looking at the Somali community. There were two Somali girls and one Sudanese girl, these three girls, and then that American convert. So you've got four cases in a city that has never had an issue with terrorism. Um, this is part of my new book. And these girls had the three, the, the Somali and Sudanese, they boarded a plane and they were picked up in Germany and brought back. Now, how did they become radicalized? Online, right. through the internet. And thank God it was, I want to give thanks to the father of the Sudanese girl because if it wasn't for Mr. Ibrahim, uh, those girls would have gone by now. So he inter- intervened. That's what we need. We need parental intervention. We need communities, Muslim communities in America and in the West, to be to work, to have a, a good relationship with our law enforcement officers. So that's one form of intervention. The other piece of intervention, which is just slowly, you know, there's there, people are talking about this in my own community, is social services. Mm-hmm. If you have a troubled child, um, do you just pick up the phone and call the police? I mean, many times you don't want to because you're Shamed. Right. You're shaming your family, your child. In the case of the Sudanese girl in Denver, she's not in school yet. I went to the, the house. Um, they're just so ashamed of what right. she did. Uh, the Somali girls are back in school and they're, you know, they're trying to lead a normal high school life because they've got a strong Somali, again, support network. Right. So if you're raised with a strong support network and you were taught that nonviolence 
is the form of expression to injustice, oppression. Uh, I always teach my kids, you see a wrong, a wrongful act or injustice, do something about it, but do it nonviolently, contribute to your community. Those are the messages that we should be sending throughout our communities here. It was, they're not getting them on, online. The, the, no. the resources that terrorist organizations have on the internet is extraordinary. I mean, from Inspire Magazine to... I mean, just the conversations between Anwar Awlaki and Major mm-hmm. Hassan at Fort Hood, that was right. – no one saw that coming because, you know, it was completely online. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm a little older, uh, but certainly the generation that comes after me is way better at not only doing this but hiding this. Mm-hmm. I mean, how – for the advice for parents out there whose kids are coding already and, and who, who grew up in the world of Apple II Plus or even before that and now – there's the world of the internet where there's you know Tor and everything else. It's almost, uh, I want to say, an impossible task because we have to try to do it. But it's an incredibly daunting task to keep up with the kind of resources that are being thrown at our kids online. So I have to, in my response to that, Vincent, is I hate spying on my children. I think that it's really, um, you know, that watchdog mentality is only going to go so far. It's going to create resentment and, and so forth. I think raising children in a nurturing environment is really important. The other day I said to my son, do you know your religion? And he said, yeah, I know the basics. I mm-hmm. said, no, I want you to know more than the basics. Right. Because if someone online can quickly then um, try to talk to you about more than the basics. Do you know this? And bring you in. And, he, and so we have these conversations even at home. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds silly, but, you know, there was a time when you talk about the birds and the bees and that was taboo. And now I'm talking about ISIS at home. I'm talking about terrorism in my own home. And given my background in intelligence with the U.S. government, um, and your museum has done a wonderful job looking at espionage and so forth, um, I understand this. And I can talk about how easy it is to uh, what you're doing is is playing with someone's mind right. um, and they're using religion and it's these days the plethora of Islamic websites you know children who don't want to go to their parents because they're immigrants or uncomfortable you can go online and, and you can go to fatwa.com or you can go ask the sheikh or this imam it's so easy for you to get answers um, and that should not be the place for children to go children right. should have enough trust uh, with their parents and that love, kind of loving relationship um, so that they they don't have to look for alternative sources. Before we, we continue this conversation mm-hmm. and move on to some ISIS-specific stuff, I want to ask you one last question related uh, to women uh, because very recently, and of course, whenever you listen to this podcast, it may not be recently to you, but for us here sitting here, very recently, there have been some pretty dramatic changes in Saudi Arabia when it comes to uh, – Maybe dramatic is the wrong word. We'll, have, we'll find out from you. But to me, they look pretty dramatic. They were allowed to vote for the very first time, allowed to stand for office, and some actually won seats mm-hmm. in Saudi Arabia. They could nominate candidates, including other women. Now, they still can't drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do you see this as a step forward, or is it so incremental it doesn't mean anything? Or is this kind of the potential uh, chink in the dam that's going to open the floodgates in the future for real equality mm-hmm. in the Muslim world? All right. Well, thank you, Vince. And I think we need to keep this in perspective. Uh, what equality means for one country may not be our version of Western bourgeois, right. you know, democratic equality. So let's bear that in mind. For a country like Saudi Arabia, um, I think this is a great step forward. It is progressive. Um, in fact, even prior to the uh, uh, women's vote, uh, prior to this, you've seen that uh, women have spoken out about driving. Now, of course, they still cannot drive and they still need a male right. chaperone. But for the first 
first time Saudi women are challenging patriarchy. They are challenging these conservative norms and values that are so deeply entrenched within society um, that to me to even challenge that um, as a minority, because women are a minority um, in, in, this, in the way that they're, you know, um, because women don't have the certain freedoms that they, they would even like. In fact, I want to say freedoms that Islam grants women. Hmm. Islam allows women to work outside the household, allows women to um, not be dictated by you know, the rules of men, what to wear, not to wear, where to go, not to go. I mean, you know, we, we as, as a Muslim woman, uh, God has created us equally. And so this unequal treatment of women is really un- Islamic. That's the main message that needs to be um, uh, that needs to be articulated in that society. Um, I think it will take time, uh, definitely, um, but I think that we should applaud the success that they have achieved thus far. And if you look at it, even outside of Saudi Arabia and other countries uh, where I was born in Pakistan, or you look at um, uh, even UAE, uh, Bahrain, and Qatar, and other countries, uh, even Iraq, in fact, uh, women have actually played a prominent role in their government. Um, and they may not have the same rights or the same voices, you know, even in the government structure. Um, but I think that that's something that we should celebrate. Do you- do you attribute causality to these changes to things like the Dare to Drive campaign or mm-hmm. some pressure from the outside world? Saudi Arabia has been the way it's been for many decades at this mm-hmm. point. Like, wh- Why do you see some of these changes starting to take place now? I think women have emboldened themselves because they can. Um, and there is a stronger support network that women have. Now, to, to argue that these women didn't have these aspirations before, I think that's untrue. Women, I think uh, some women in Saudi, not all. I know some Saudi women who don't even care to drive. They like their lifestyle as it is. So let's be fair. When I talk about all of Saudi Arabia, but those who wish to drive, who wish for a greater mobility, um, uh, I think that is always uh, ex- that sentiment has, has always existed. Uh, but now we live in a more a digital age and I think that that has changed so much that has allowed people to connect with one another so a woman in Saudi can connect with a woman in the United States or even Muslim women in Europe and you can garner that kind of not even attention but that support and once you have that support you realize look I'm not alone I am not a. I'm not going to do this on my own. And if I speak up uh, on my own, I know that I'm going to have the support of so many other women and men as well. I want to applaud the men who also um, back these movements. Um, so I think that our the environment that we in the world that we live in today uh, is very different. It is you can no longer isolate yourself um, if you want to start a movement, uh, even a small change um, in your society. I think it's more doable now than it was years ago and and i would i would think and i want to ask you about this that this is more than just a human nature story like mm-hmm. hey well hey saudi women can vote mm-hmm. I, I think this may have long-lasting impact on on middle east policy not just from the united states perspective but the more women are treated equally the less likely they are to be radicalized and less likely they are to be sucked into these groups like isis because mm-hmm. they they have that feeling of belonging in their own society I mean, is this something potentially you see as a, a positive trend other than other than the equality idea, mm-hmm. which, of course, is incredibly positive. But as far as on, on a more realistic perspective, uh, realism in the foreign policy sense, mm-hmm. uh, do you see the potential for this bringing in very positive changes to the Middle East holistically? I like to go back to and use the term empowerment. How mm-hmm. do women empower themselves and what does empowerment mean to each individual um, 
woman or a community. Um, in some ways, empowerment could be, you know, being elected and having a voice in your government um, and even speaking for your gender. I, I would like to caveat this by saying that there are women, women who've enjoyed, uh, joined Al-Qaeda, for example, even the girls who've been recruited by ISIS, they're not stupid. I mean, some mm. of them have been in school, they're Western educated, um, some have higher degrees, um, um, even women who are not members of terrorist organizations but are very uh, conservative women have um, uh, actually been educated outside the United States and then or in Europe and then they return and then so I, I don't know empowerment in that sense of belonging um, it for some women it could mean joining a terrorist organization but I think for the majority of Muslim women it just means being able to enact real change or being part of your society um, so I think we have to be careful right. you know because belonging certainly is one of uh, multiple motivations for these women. So one of the things that bothers me, and I know it bothers you because I've seen you write about it, is this idea uh, that uh, why won't moderate Muslims or, 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 or you know non-radicalized Muslims, why won't they stand up and fight against ISIS? Mm -hmm. Why You hear that from political parties, actually both of them, uh, but it, it's kind of this tired refrain of, you know, we're doing all the heavy lifting. You know, why won't the Muslims stand up and do something about ISIS? Um, I, I think there's a pretty simple response to that, and I think it's a, kind of a ridiculous argument. Can you talk a little bit about what, let's call it, the moderate Muslims around the world have done? Uh, obviously, they're the ones taking the heavy burden. They're the ones, for, for every American killed, there's thousands mm -hmm. uh, of Muslims killed by terrorism. Uh, but what's being done to, to quiet this once and for all, for anyone listening to this podcast who thinks otherwise, to where things what what are, what are moderate Muslims around the world doing to combat radicalization? Well, that's a really heavy question. I can't speak for the 1.6 billion Muslims in the world today, um, but I can only speak what's happening within my own, you know, society and community here. First, I'd like to say that that's a fair question, and that's a fair sentiment to have. So, when Westerners, or I should even just say non-Muslims, pose this to me, I understand it. You know, the argument is that. Um, uh, uh, all Muslims are not terrorists, but all terrorists have been Muslims. And then, of course, you add the third line, and that most Muslims have been killed by Islamic radicals. Um, but I like to bear in mind that there are also the majority of Muslims are nonviolent, and their faith actually speaks. Uh, if you really study Islam, it's a religion of compassion, peace, and mercy, and tolerance for all people. And so, what ISIS and Al Qaeda and other groups have done have really twisted the faith. And Muslim activists are speaking out against this now. I, it was less during Al-Qaeda. You know, this was more of a fair question for a just question during those times. But now you see immediately, for example, President Obama's State of the Union address, whether you liked it or not, he spoke to the fear mongering in this country and, and that we need to stand together instead, instead of being, you know, um, uh, dividing, uh, you know, creating divisions within our communities. So he spoke specifically to that. And the next day, what happened in Washington, D.C., the very next day after the speech, um, CARE, now CARE is the Council of American Islamic Relations. Uh, whether you like CARE or not is besides the point, but you had a prominent Islamic organization and so many others actually applaud the president. Now that's on the political end. Right. If you look at what's happening at the community level, I can speak to an organization in, um, there's a model that's being used now in Montgomery County 
County, Maryland, and it's by a friend of mine, Hadia Maramadi, who runs an organization called Word, W-R-D-E dot org. So it's Word with an E. And they have a what's called, I think, the first time I've ever seen a model that works at the community level that brings Muslim families together with law enforcement agencies. Um, and she's taken this model. It's now being trans- it, now it's being used at Prince George's County. It's a model that's now it, uh, she's trying to replicate this model in Los Angeles with the police and the community there down in Colorado. Um, so you see there's now an effort um, that we're slowly starting to uh, reach the communities and families and also the schools, mm-hmm. the schools. There is a cybersecurity training um, that she now uh, offers to the schools within the Maryland area so that teachers can also understand um, how to, you know, what children are looking at online and to look for certain indicators. Um and I think that, you know, as we move forward um, and that there is a great recognition within the Muslim communities here that this is a problem and it starts at the home. Yeah. I was in uh, I, I was at a mosque in Denver, Colorado, when the San Bernardino attacks happened and I was there during the imam's lecture. Uh, his uh, Friday sermon and afterwards even spoke to the imam myself. And there was something that I really I have to applaud the imam for saying. He said, we have to clean house. We have to clean and cleanse our homes because there's a very famous Islamic uh, tradition that says half of your iman, half of your faith is your cleanliness. It's cleanliness, not just physical, but also your moral cleansing. Mm-hmm. In other words, pay attention to what's happening inside your home. All of these problems and these troublemakers and these, you know, this, uh, um, the um, youth that are vulnerable, it starts from inside the home. If you have a weak um, foundation, then children are going to look elsewhere to strengthen their sense of identity and so forth. Um, So it's not just within, you know, the D.C., Virginia, Maryland community that I've started to see more action being taken. I think that there is an understanding across America. um, And slowly you will see that more Muslims, if they're not speaking out on our televisions and our radio programs, they're certainly speaking out within their own communities. Right. I mean, you brought up mosques and imams. I mean, there was the the famous letter to Baghdadi with the uh, Mm -hmm. head of ISIS where... Uh, over 100 Muslim leaders, uh, organizations wrote an open letter lashing out against ISIS atrocities. Um, there have actually even been rallies, pol- uh, religious rallies across the country that have been anti-ISIS yes. led by Muslims. Um, is this another front against ISIS? Like you talked about the home, but is, is the mosque another front against I mean, look, I come from a Catholic background. The last thing we tend to hear is our priest standing up and saying, we're, you know, we're going to denounce the Crusades and the, the Inquisition and the Reformation. Um, granted, it's not happening right now, but you know, this is since the problem is a radicalization or a adulteration of a faith. Uh, do you see part of the solution to be where the centers of that faith? And, you know, the, yes, the family, but also the mosque itself. Absolutely, um, because again, this is you know, being seen and fought as an ideological war. It's an us versus them and so forth. So it has to be addressed within the mosque community. And I I know that the imams are very aware of this. Now, different imams are going to tackle this in different ways. And there are different communities. I mean, no, I've been through probably... um, uh, during my time living in America, I've been to every church of every uh, denomination. So I've seen that every pastor, every preacher, I mean, it's different. It's the right. same thing within the Muslim community. Um, uh, some mosque, uh, I have to say, you know, the imams come from a different country. So they're immigrants themselves, mm-hmm. and they all have that vernacular. Uh, and then you've got the imam, which I'm really attracted to. You've got this, not this, not so much a convert. Uh, you don't have to be an American-born convert to Islam. But you... 
you need to understand America. Right. You need to understand America's problems. You, you know, you need to understand the society in which we live in. And the because while I applaud the scholars who have spoken out against ISIS, they're still of a different generation. So there's a generational gap, and um, many of them come from uh, you know very kind of an Islam that has been practiced and preached differently than it is in America. And so we have to make Islam relevant to an American society. Does it mean that you change the faith? Absolutely not, because that would be heresy. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not asking for, you know, changing the faith, but there's a, there's something we always say that Islam is a progressive religion. That means it's for every time and every place. And actually great responsibility falls on the imams. You know, the mosque should not be a center of political rallies or the mosque should never be politicized. And I remember back in the day, there were, you know, discussions of um, politics and foreign policies and so forth in the mosque. And that used to startle me. I think there has been a shift away from that. At least I would like to think so, um, so that the mosque that I attend, for example, it's the focus is on morality. You know, how do we be uh, good American citizens? Hmm. What do we do? You know, as a mosque community, don't just serve your own people. That's not what Prophet Muhammad taught us. We were taught to uh, the com- to love and live with the community in which you reside, so that you know, take part in the kitchen soup. Go t- take part in you know a-, a homeless drive. Just you know, and there are mosques and Muslims here who do that. They do not. They they don't isolate themselves within their own communities. And that's really important because that comes back again to creating that strong, nurturing environment. Right. Um, and and should there be a place for political, excuse me, political discussion? Yes, but not inside the mosque. Let me, let me throw at you another relatively hot button political issue. And that's the, this refugee question, the border question that a lot of European countries are knee deep in right now that the United States will soon be involved in. Well, we are because of the political campaigns going on about bringing in Syrian refugees. Um, the argument against is that, you know, even if 99% of these refugees are fleeing, you know, terror, fleeing violence within their country, even if 1% are bad seeds, this, you know, that could be a real security problem for the United States. Uh, I know the answer to this question. Let me throw it out to you so we can wax about it. Is there an obvious solution to this problem? Um, the vast majority aren't radicalized, but some are. How do we screen them? How do we how do we protect ourselves while still upholding, as so many people have said, upholding the, the real virtues of America, this idea of the Statue of Liberty and where we're going to let in the refugees uh, because that's who we are as a country? How do we do both? Well, I – and I've said this recently in another program that we have to bear in mind. We're an immigrant country. And if it wasn't for our open door policy, um, my father would not have come here in the 1970s. I wouldn't have been here. I wouldn't have been here. And so I'm very thankful. And I'm blessed, actually, that I've had the American experience. I went to school in America and college, and I've worked for this country. Um, And there are so many people around the world who want to do the same. We want to come to this country because they believe in American values. They believe in the opportunities that only this country, there's a reason we say America is great, because only in this country are you afforded those opportunities. Having said that, it is important to to really look at our screening process, um, and I know that for Syrian refugees and for refu- um, for other refugees, Somali refugees, East Africans, and so forth, who come to this country, and I've spoken to some, I've interviewed a few of them. It is a really rigorous process. Mm-hmm. Um, one Somali, he was a, a child soldier who I recently interviewed, um, and then he escaped to Kenya. And while he was in Kenya, it took fourteen years for this young boy until he became a young man to actually come to this country because of our screening process. I have to think that our screening process um, is... 
is, is, is important. And it's not just one screening. There's a, a multiple background checks and so forth that go into this. I mean, it's a full-fledged investigation, right. you know. Um, so for those who speak to the, I don't know, 0.1%, um, I understand it because, again, Tashfin Malik came to this country on a fiancé visa. So, unfortunately, we had that. But I think the, the thing to bear in mind with Tashfin Malik is that it was also – this is an issue related to gun violence and access to weapons, which is, again, a completely different issue, but something we should also bear in mind. So, the question is, are um, refugees terrorists or, or is the question, are terrorists using refugees? And I think it's the latter. Right. I just had, I just spoke to a former chief of police who uh, operated in eastern Turkey. And on that border, there are Syrian refugees who have come into Turkey. Now you've got thousands of refugees on the Turkish border. And he told me just last weekend that that's a real problem, that you have refugees um, who are perpetrating attacks but, or terrorists using the refugee status. And that's something to look for. And I think that since we've seen, you know, the recent attack in Turkey and Istanbul, uh, apparently he was uh, he was a Syrian national, but uh, again, a refugee. Um, that's very disconcerting. But I think that we also have to bear in mind that it's very difficult for a refugee to enter this country. Right. It is nearly, I mean, unless you, it's very difficult for a bad sea to enter this country. And I think that we should, um, we should, that should give us hope and, and not create fear within us. Yeah, I think people forget that unless you're a purebred Apache or mm-hmm. Comanche, that we're all, we're all immigrants uh, here one way or another. I want to ask you one last question on this topic. And without wading into any kind of political back and forth about this, because there has been some, I, I wonder from your experiences talking to Muslims around the country and around the world, um, do you get a sense that anti-Islam in the United States, the anti-Muslim sentiment fuels those overseas who are saying that there's a, a war on between the West and Islam, that there's a, this new crusade. I mean, I, I know American soldiers are, are very um, tongue-in-cheek, but not all the way, called crusaders in many cases. And do, you, do you see anti-Muslim sentiment uh, in the United States fueling the, the propaganda battle overseas. First, I want to thank our American servicemen and women who give their lives and enormous struggles and sacrifices they make to keep us safe. For five, nearly five years, I was a U.S. military instructor, and I've trained so many of our um, uh, young men and even those uh, who uh, who were deployed to Iraq and also to Afghanistan and Pakistan. So I've learned so much from our military uh, who have served in these countries. And and coming back now to your question, um, the more the Islamophobia that's created in this country, we're actually feeding into the right wing um, elements of our society. And what that does is it also fuels ISIS and also other, not just ISIS, but sympathizers in the Muslim world um, who would look to America as an intolerant uh, society, and that's the last thing that we are. Yeah. I find this country to be uh, very, t- despite our racial issues and um, you know some of the the problems that we're facing, even within the Muslim communities. I think this country has always been very tolerant, and we have to be careful that because if we create fear, we're not going to just create this, um, um, uh, you know, allow sympathizers to then possibly join terrorist organizations, but we're going to divide our own communities here in this country. And that's the last thing that we need. So I want to shift very quickly to Pakistan. Um, And this is really a broader question about the Middle East. 
Uh, but since Pakistan is a nuclear power, and because of your background experience, I want to direct a bit of the focus there. But really, how do we keep ISIS from destabilizing the surrounding countries? I mean, you know, they're Syria and Iraq today, a little bit in Libya. Uh, isn't that really the greatest threat that they can, you see attacks in Istanbul? How can we keep this from flooding into countries that may be problematic, like Pakistan mm -hmm. with nuclear weapons, like Turkey, which is a member of NATO? Mm -hmm. uh, how do we shut those borders down? Um, is there a solution? Uh, well, I don't like to um, – I always say that no two conflicts are alike, and yeah. so are no, no two countries, and their policies and practices will differ from one another. And so if you look at Pakistan, even though Pakistan is, a, I say, a so-called democratic country, uh, there were elections for the first time a few years ago. But having said that, Pakistan is a, really a military state, and it's the military and their latest um, – operations against terrorists that has really made Pakistan safer than it has okay. ever been before. Pakistan has really turned the tide. That doesn't mean there are not terrorist organizations or elements in Pakistan. There are. In fact, Pakistan just a day ago um, arrested key members of Jaish Muhammad, for example, because of an attack that uh, was perpetrated on an Indian airbase. So Pakistanis are, are really doing more than they've ever done because terrorists also uh, destabilize Pakistan mm -hmm. as a country. Right. And um, domestically, you know, domestic public opinion um, uh, is, is against uh, terrorists. And even though there's certain groups like the Taliban and other uh, Kashmiri-based outfits that, are, that use violence, um, they still exist uh, in certain border areas in Pakistan. And even sometimes you'll find them in the cities. Uh, the Pakistanis have really come a long way. One of the things that a Pakistani official always reminds me, uh, reminds me it says, remember, we arrested more and captured more than 700 al-Qaeda operatives. Well, that's because they were in your country, yeah. so you had more at stake here, you know. <laughs> um, uh, but to your point, you know, ISIS has been able to take advantage of weak states, mm -hmm. uh, fragile countries, and this is why you see the encroachment in Libya. This is why there's... Uh, You'll, you may see meddling in Yemen. Yemen is turned into a full-fledged Shia versus Sunni, and then it's involved the uh, the regional powers of that uh, that uh, you know Saudi and Iran and so forth. Um, I I do think that there is a consensus, a broad consensus among Muslim uh, elites and in countries and even populations that ISIS does not represent Islam. In fact, ISIS is a threat to our well-being and our security and safety. And so it it is important that as we move forward. Um, I really do believe that an international coalition and working together to degrade um, and defeat ISIS is, is what we need to do. I want to wrap this up by talking about Kashmir. Uh, for me, as a, a student of foreign policy, uh, Kashmir is very interesting because it's a region that's really at the center of geopolitical I would call it insanity, but landmines. The fact that you got Pakistan, India, and China all kind of challenging one another for power there. Um, but at the same time, you have a new book about it uh, that really looks at a whole nother side of Kashmir. It's not anything to do with intelligence, but it sounded so fascinating. Mm -hmm. And it looks like it's going to be such an incredibly interesting book. I want to give you a chance to talk about it because uh, to me, uh, you don't always get viewpoints like this. Because when you hear Kashmir, if you're paying any attention to it, it's because, yeah, there's been three wars over it, you know, all this. But you don't see the personal side. Mm -hmm. You can talk a little bit about uh, your new book about Kashmir coming out. Well, thank you, Vincent. So the book is titled Secrets of the, we added the word Kashmir, Secrets of the Kashmir Valley. And it should be out any day now. I've been waiting for the publisher to give me the final word. So um, 
the book is a is a human interest story, and I say that because we often look at wars and conflicts, and I've been, um, I do the same. We look at them as um, from a political scientist perspective, and I wanted to see the faces. I wanted to meet the people, and particularly the women. The women are affected by war, and I have seen that women in times of war. We've seen this in the American Civil War here in this country. I've seen this all over the world. Women step up. Women take action, and in this case, in Kashmir, women have been political activists. Now it's been very difficult to work alongside men in that in that valley. It's not a country, um, but in the valley, uh, women have been imprisoned. They've been thrown in jail, um, charged of false terrorism. Uh, you know, uh, being linked to terrorist organizations, and more importantly, women have taken to the streets and become protesters. And so they've protested, and I think that that's really important that you have women alongside men. And women see themselves as equal. You know, my mother. Why I always I got interested in Kashmir, and I've always, as a child, been fascinated by women in war. My mother in 1965 volunteered for the Pakistan Army. My mother volunteered to fight in a war. And when I asked her why did you do that, and in this war in 1965 was over Kashmir, mm-hmm. and my family is from Kashmir, and she said because I wanted to show that women can fight too. And and there were very few women at that time who were training for the war, and so women have really, when they take to the streets, um, when they stand beside their men, that's when they really gain true equality. Now, equality in the home may be different, you know, or elsewhere, but when they're on the streets, they have their voices are just as loud, right. uh, and they're just as vibrant, and they have something to say. So I wanted to show that the women matter, and that we should be listening to their voices. Well, Farhana, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here today. This is a voice that we don't get very often here at the International Spy Museum. It's great to have your perspective. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we'll post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTL Spycast. That's INTL Spycast. Talk to you next week.